Hi, everyone, and a very happy holiday or Merry Christmas, however you celebrate it or not. This is a day to listen to some information that I'm going to be sharing with you that I believe is crucial to going forward with public health policy. Let me put this in perspective. We have been denied the truth from the mainstream media, from almost all of our legislators in both the House and the Senate, and the scientific and medical community as a whole, probably 99%, have continued to live with deception, misinformation, and out-and-out lies. What am I speaking about? If you heard last week's program, in fact, last Wednesday's program, I played 40 minutes of a clip of David Martin, Dr. David Martin. In that clip, he was speaking from Europe, from the Rudolf Steiner Center there, and he put his reputation on the line. He is the only person that I'm aware of that has this knowledge, this scholarship of studying patents. Who, who got the patent? What did the patent allow for? What was it for? And through years of effort, and you can only imagine how many hours, he has been able to show that they created, through gain-of-function research, which is actually biological weaponization, make no mistake, that's what it is, in these secret biolabs around the world that the United States sponsors and other countries do as well, where they're taking a virus or bacteria and try to make it so deadly that we have no defense against it. The current SARS virus uh, was shown to have, through the Institute of Pasteur and the Nobel Prize-winning team of Luc Montagnier and his colleagues, that there was HIV cleaved into the SARS virus. Another group of scientists in Europe found that the mad cow disease, uh, prion, was cleaved into that virus. And others have shown what would cause chronic fatigue syndrome was in there. Now, that could not have come from nature. It did come from individuals weaponizing it. And we have denied this as a society. Everything to cover this up has been done from the World Health Organization to Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, to Collins, who headed the U.S. Public Health Service, the FDA and the CDC, and the mainstream media. They have all lied about its origin. And now David Martin is going to take us on a journey. And if you find that what he says is accurate or true or believable, follow up, do your own homework, then share this information. Because the greatest public health scandal in history that has caused the lives of millions of people, over a million in the United States, and injured hundreds of millions more. This is the cost of their deception and betrayal of the public trust. Now to the clip. That's the model. By the way, hundreds of papers on this. And this is why this question of in the recent injections, is there HIV fragments somewhere in any of this stuff? The answer is, of course there is. It was designed into it. And it was designed into it not a couple years ago, not by Moderna, not by BioNTech. This was designed in many, many years earlier. And not surprisingly, from 96 to 99, Ralph Barrick begins the weaponization of this 
allegedly synthetic coronavirus envelope to become a vaccine vector. 1999 comes along, and lo and behold, Barrick and Fauci create what I affectionately call Franken-CoEV. What's that? That is the monster, that's the chimera, that's the idea that we can change surface um, glycans, we can change surface spike proteins, we can change surface oligomerization, we can do all kinds of things to modify this thing so we can actually have this thing, the packet shell, which we called the outer edge of coronavirus, we can allow that to be the carrier of getting anything we want into any cell we want. Which is the reason why the 2002 patent becomes interesting. Now, put a pin in that, because we're going to come back to the 2002 patent, because there's a mystery in that patent. It's filed in 2002, 2002, which means it should have expired in 2022. You know what people with patents don't like? Not to make money on the thing that they patented before the patent runs out. Just hold that thought. I'm not saying that they did. I'm not saying bad people did bad things, because that would make me judgy. <laughs> but I am wondering if I had a patent on a thing that I thought was valuable, would it be nice to have a reason for that thing's value to be visible before the patent expires? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> now, this is a terrible projector on a terrible screen with a terribly structured slide. So I'm going to go ahead and jump up on the stage so that you can see what I'm pointing to. But this is the letter that was sent to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill on October the 21st, 2014. This is the letter that was sent. If anybody remembers, 2014 gain-of-function moratorium in the fall of 2014, and, and we've heard Anthony Fauci say, well, we never funded gain-of-function research. So it's quite problematic when you see that this letter came from the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Bethesda, Maryland, which sounds like NIAID. Why? Because it is NIAID. That's why it sounds like it. Their letterhead to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Dear Ms. Settle, NIAID has determined that the above reference grant, and that's AI 1077810-02, has determined that that research grant is subject to the gain-of-function moratorium. But Fauci says they never funded it. But on October the 21st, 2014, they said Ralph Barrick's research was a gain-of-function project. Well, did you fund it? Did you not? Let's read on, shall we? Role of uncharacterized genes in high pathogenic human coronavirus infection. Wow, that sounds like probably, I don't know, gain-of-function research. And then the research is to see if we can have novel functions of viral replication in vitro, which means, can we get it to reproduce itself in a Petri dish? And I'm being crass there. Virologists out there are going to go, not a Petri dish. You're right. But the second line is the one that's the damning evidence. The second line of that statement was not in the original grant. And that was viral modification to see if we can increase human pathogenesis in vivo. 
not only did we say you could keep doing the gain-of-function research, we changed the research to include seeing if you could increase pathogenesis in humans in vivo. Does anybody have a tiny problem with what is on that letter? No. And does anybody else have a tiny problem that not a single elected or appointed representative of any government agency anywhere on this planet has ever put that letter into the public? Why wouldn't they do that? That would be really bad marketing, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd be very bad marketing. But you say, but Dave, did they really say that they could keep doing the gain-of-function research? Well, why don't I go ahead and inconveniently read this very small print right here at the bottom of this paragraph on the first page of the letter, so you don't even have to read the whole letter. As your grant is currently funded, this pause is voluntary. See, you almost have to laugh until you realize that two billion human beings are going to be incapacitated or killed because of this letter. Two billion people will be incapacitated or killed because of this letter. And then it's not funny anymore. And let's get the last little punchline, because this feeds into that opening quote that I showed you. Because remember, the opening quote was to sustain the funding. Remember, that's what we were doing. We we're sustaining funding. As this grant is already funded, the pause is voluntary, and you can continue to conduct the applicable GOF, gain of function, research until the end of the currently active budget period. At which point all of you should say, well, what was the currently active budget period in this grant? Well, you ready for this? It didn't have a termination date. <laughs> it was a non-competitive, perpetually funded grant. So maybe we'll just tidy this thing up. We'll just wrap it up. We'll all be done, and we'll go home for Christmas. No. Worse than this, what will happen? What will happen is this little group comes along and says, hey, the World Health Organization is a really cool way to get legal immunity from things where the crime that I'm doing cannot be investigated or prosecuted. That's Article 13 of the Charter of the World Health Organization. Did you hear me? You cannot be investigated or prosecuted under Article 13 of the Charter. So wouldn't it be interesting, if we know that we have a biological weapon, wouldn't it be cool to start a vaccine development program under the World Health Organization's GAVI, under the World Health Organization's Charter, because what happens if, God forbid, a bald guy from Virginia ever convinces the world 
to say we should hold some people accountable. Well, who is going to be held accountable? Ah, they actually knew that if they put the project under the who, it was shielded from all criminal investigation and all criminal liability forever. Because that's the charter that we all signed in the 1940s. We all agreed to that, remember? <laughs> remember, we all agreed that it would be a good idea. It would be a good idea to take an institution funded by a pharmaceutical company. be a really good idea if we took an institution funded by a pharmaceutical company to write a law that says that any actions taken by that organization funded by a pharmaceutical company can never be criminally prosecuted ever in any jurisdiction. You mean, oh, whoa, 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 hold on a second. So you're saying that if a criminal could write a law that says, here are the crimes I'm going to commit, but I'm going to go ahead and write a law that says none of my crimes can ever be prosecuted, nothing wrong could go into that story, right? Nothing bad could happen from that. It gets far worse. What did they do? They actually made sure that despite the fact that by that time, in 2011, we had the Global Vaccine Action Plan, we had a 10-year goal that said that between 2010 and 2020, the world would accept a universal influenza or coronavirus vaccine. <gasps> For a disease that we said was eradicated. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We would actually have, and their words not mine, an accidental or intentional release of a respiratory pathogen. What's wrong with that phrase? An accidental or intentional release? Does that sound like somebody spilled something in their coffee in the lab? No. Release is an active, intent-filled word. It is not an oops accident. This is not a bat and a pangolin went into a bar in Wuhan, got it on one night, and boop, out came baby COVID. <laughs> Which is a story you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe that story. Instead of reading the actual words from the criminals themselves. But that's okay. We're going to have the, the who investigate the crime. That they did. And what we're going to do is we're going to have the guy who said we no, need to create media hype... We're going to have that guy be the leader of the investigation. That is akin to having a bank robber standing on the steps of the bank with a bag of money and going up to the bank robber with the sirens going and the police running into the bank and saying, excuse me, you look like an expert in this topic. <laughs> Would you care to comment on the economic theory of theft? <laughs> <laughs> and his response would be, well, the money was in that building, I wanted it, so I went in with my gun and my N95 mask, because I'm helping save granny, and I took the bag of money, and I came out, 
And my economic theory is now I have their money. And now it's my money. And you go, thank you very much for explaining economic theory. Go on your merry way. Which is exactly what the World Health Organization did. That's exactly what they did. And we're all sitting there going, well, surely somebody's going to do a legitimate investigation, right? No! That was the investigation. Interview the bank robber with the bag of money and then pay his cab fare to send him on his way. Now, once again, small slides. I apologize for this. But I want you to see that this is not just COVID. This is a crime that keeps going and going and going. This was the Childhood Immunization Program, Phase 3, and are you ready for this? 2011. And we should have had this conversation in 2011, but we didn't. But let's look at the deaths of children in the malaria vaccine clinical trials in 2011. Let's look at how many kids died. And by the way, these are kids that need to die anyhow because they're little kids. They, they really are, they're going to make too much noise. They might cry. They might soil themselves in a restaurant. They may offend us. So we're not going to mind that these kids died. Fatal serious adverse events, 66 in the malaria vaccine clinical trial, 28 in the control group. And you go, well, what, what is that? That's about two times more people died in the vaccine trial than the control group. But then you read out what the control group was. You know what the control group was? A cocktail of vaccines. <laughs> Not saline. So we murdered, murdered. This is not, oops, accident happened. We murdered these children in 2011 for a malaria vaccine. When we did the clinical trial, we murdered them. And when people attempted to hold the clinical trials agents accountable for their actions, guess what they referred to? They referred to Article 13 of their Representative as members, immunity from personal arrest or detention and from seizure of personal baggage in respect to words spoken or written and all acts done by them in their official capacity, immunity from legal process of every kind. That's in the charter of what we call the World Health Organization. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the mafia. And we should stop pretending it's something else. It is an embarrassment to the Swiss people. It is an embarrassment to the Swiss government that the World Health Organization exists in this place because the Swiss have enabled the organized crime of the World Health Organization and they have enabled it so that real individuals can murder children under the age of three months. Murder them. And we don't care. I get passionate about this. You know why? Not because I'm the son of preachers. I'm not going to have an altar call at the end and ask you to be saved. As a matter of fact, I want you to live with the hell I'm dropping you into right now. We, the people, cannot allow this to happen. We cannot allow it to happen. We're talking about the treaty for the international health nonsense that the World Health Organization is talking about now. You know why they're doing this? To distract us from the fact that we should be talking about the World Health Organization itself. Not the treaty. And as long as Section 13 of Article 5 
remains in the Charter, I don't care what treaties they pass. It doesn't matter. Because the institution is corrupt at its core. And you can't fix that. That is a license to kill, and we the people are willing to live with it. Now, people sit there going, Dave, are you really upset at the WHO? No, I'm really upset not at the WHO. I'm upset at the criminals that set the WHO up. <laughs> but I'm also upset with the WHO because it's a criminal organization. When I say it's a criminal organization, let's unpack the facts. In 1910, when the Flexner Report was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegies and others, what we did was we decided to get rid of that guy, legitimately, like really, get rid of that guy, and everything anybody like that spoke about, we decided to do that and we decided to go into the pharmaceutical, allopathic, great new world of crazy industrial pharmaceuticals. And I happened to drive by Roche on the way in, so I feel really good about pissing off somebody who works at Roche here. I don't know. Maybe you work at Roche. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If I piss you off, I'm not sorry, because you're the problem. We have to start speaking truth. And the truth is that in 1910, when we had the Flexner Report published, and Carnegie got the nominal credit for that, we actually found out that shortly after that, in 1918, or sorry, 1916, the Rockefeller Foundation at the time decided to award Johns Hopkins University the role of being the vaccine center for the world. Johns Hopkins University, you haven't heard their name mentioned any time before now, right? The, the Johns Hopkins, the same guy who who showed that hydroxychloroquine was safe and effective for malaria. Hold on a second. You mean the guy who said hydroxychloroquine was safe and effective? You mean the very name of the institution named for the very guy who actually said hydroxychloroquine was safe and effective? You mean that Johns Hopkins University who in 2020 said hydroxychloroquine is not safe and effective and it kills people? That Johns Hopkins University that's named after the guy who actually said it was safe and effective. You name the university after him. In 1916, the Rockefeller Foundation funds the vaccine program, which was the forerunner for the World Health Organization. And in 1916, the reason why you got the funding was for the malaria vaccine program at Johns Hopkins University made famous by hydroxychloroquine. Boom! See, the crimes are right in front of your face. Like, they're so audacious. These crimes are so ridiculous that you sit there going, no, seriously, they're not that dumb, are they? I don't know. Would it be dumb? Just hypothetically. Let's say a German biotech company came out with an experimental injection, and they decided that the first large clinical trial population that they should inject are the Jews in Israel. I'm glad you laughed. I love your laugh. <laughs> Can you imagine that marketing program? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to be a German biotech company. We are going to make injection. Then we are going to inject it into the Jews. And nobody raised their hand going, uh, hold on a minute, that would be bad marketing. <laughs> nobody? Nobody thought, 
Maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should find another population to inject first. Oh, no, and then Netanyahu comes along and says, oh, yeah, let's inject us first. Right, if you told anybody the thing I just told you about what really happened five years earlier, you would have been accused of being a Holocaust denier or an anti-Semite or a something else, and what are you now? You're Pfizer-BioNTech. You are the savior of the free world. No, you're a mass-murdering psychopath. Carefully disguised by the World Health Organization as safe and effective. Don't think for a minute it's going to get better. Because the same guys that in 1913 decided to go ahead and start the public health vaccine program decided in 1941 through the Wellcome Trust, which was set up in 1924, that they were going to become the regulator of safety and efficacy for the United Kingdom. Now, isn't it interesting that the foundation set up by a pharmaceutical company set up its own regulator? Nothing could go wrong with this, right? If the regulator gets all of its funding from the company it regulates, that feels to me to be no conflict of interest. <laughs> it gets better. In 1941, we have the Therapeutic Corporation Act, and then in 1947, we set up the World Health Organization. Now, I find this particular piece of information quite problematic because the founding of the World Health Organization in 1947 was done by none other than Dr. Rene Sand. That's who started the WHO. Now, hold that thought, and then let's look at what happened in 1952. The WHO Director General, Brock Chisholm, advocates for the role of the World Health Organization to be modified to become a goal of population control. Sit with me for a moment and ask this question. By the way, that's his, their writing. That's not me saying, oh, that's probably what he meant. He actually said the role of the World Health Organization is population control. And the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, or sorry, the Wellcome Trust, and two other foundations from the UK actually all funded the first programs right after that report was granted. Now, if you go back and look at the chart of the World Health Organization, you find a little tiny problem. Because the chart of the World Health Organization does not provide a pathway for private sector interests to become sponsoring entities. There is no legal pathway to do that. That's tax evasion. We should call it what it is. Those foundations are not using the WHO as a charitable arm to go out and conduct research and do all their philanthropic activities. Those people are using the WHO as a marketing and distribution arm of their business as evidenced by the fact that if you go back and you look at what the actual money does, is it goes back into the companies owned by the companies that did the donations. This is not an allegation. It's the audited financial statements. So this is not anything other than a marketing and distribution front that also provides immunity. And 1955, we have the malaria program. 1967, we say we eradicated smallpox, except for the fact that we haven't. 1974, the essential vaccine program is launched. 1988, after we pass, importantly, after we pass the 1986 
immunization protections for manufacturers of vaccines in the United States under the National Vaccine Injury Prevention Act of 1986. We launched polio eradication. 2006, we launched HPV. 2011, we say that we're going to launch the decade of the vaccines, and we give the Gates Foundation the ability to, by 2023, be 88% of the donor-funded budget of the World Health Organization. 88. 88% of the donations received through the donor programs of the World Health Organization are from the Gates Foundation. Does that sound like an independent agency? Does that sound like a philanthropic agency? Does that sound like anything remotely resembling anything that would even pass the sniff test of independence? No. That is a wholly owned subsidiary. By every definition of the law, it's a wholly owned subsidiary. Now we pretend to this day that the World Health Organization has a health mandate. They do not. They said that they were going to create a worldwide vaccination program. They told us they were going to do it in 2011. The book, Decade of Vaccines, if you have not read that and you want your blood to boil, read that document. Because that's where they admit to the crimes that just happened. Now, this slide, if I had to pick one slide, is the simplest way to summarize what happened. In 2002, we developed the weapon. In 2003, the United States CDC patented the weapon in its first commercial deployment. In 2005, we actually turned that program into synthetic coronaviruses, biohacking, biological warfare enabling technologies in 2005. And then on September 18th, 2019, September 18th, 2019, we said that the World Health Organization was going to have a rapidly spreading pandemic due to a lethal respiratory pathogen. The World Health Organization said they were going to do it. They published it on September 18th, 2019. This is not an allegation, people. This was printed with the signatures of the criminals signing the page that said the death warrant to the world. And then we go down here to say, what is the progress indicator by September 2020? What's the progress indicator? By September 2020, the world would have the financing for and the manufacturing cap capacity for a pan-influenza, pan-coronavirus vaccine. In a thing called the world at risk. You can look it up. This is page eight of world at risk. Everybody can download it. Everybody can read it and everybody should share it. This is the admission by the World Health Organization that they are going to do a release of a respiratory pathogen. And by the way, the reason why this is particularly important is they say a lethal respiratory pathogen. They knew they were going to kill people. That's why they use the word lethal. No, no, no. We'll get to that whole story. But remember, all this stuff is theater. This is the crime. 
Right? This is the crime. This is the who? Yeah, this is the World Health Organization Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. 2008, 2008, the CIA report said that there was going to be... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, yeah. Exactly. These are all... What I'm doing is I'm strictly limiting ourselves to the actual criminal case. There are tons of motivations, tons of other theatrics, everything else. But this is the evidence that we can use in a criminal case to say this was not an accident, this was not anything else, this was an actual premeditated act of lethality. Why am I alleging that? Not because somebody said there would be a thing. They actually not only told you when it was going to happen, but they told you the deadline for the outcome response. So we're going to release the pathogen so that by September 2020, the world has accepted a universal vaccine. That is prima facie terrorism, collusion, racketeering, criminal conspiracy, and best of all, murder. So that's why we have the wanted posters. And some of these names are people that you know, because we've talked about them before. You know Peter Daszak. You know Ralph Barrick. But you don't know Asai, who happened at the time to be the racketeering, collusion, and interlocking directorate criminal who simultaneously sat on the Welcome Trust Board and was the head of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board of the WHO. The same guy was running the funding for the crime and announced the crime. Same guy, and you guys don't know his name because nobody talks about him, except this crazy bow-tie-wearing bald guy from Virginia. Jeremy Farr, who was at the time the CEO of Welcome. Chris Elias, who was the doctor from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Gabriasis, the head of the World Health Organization. Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, and the World Health Organization, DARPA, the United Nations, Open Philanthropy, Rockefeller Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, and the Gates Foundation. These individuals, in a violation of racketeering, antitrust, and anti-competition laws, colluded to create the largest act of global terrorism known to Earth and announced the plan to do it on September 18, 2019, with premeditation and with the intent to kill. This was entirely a premeditated act. They told us it would happen in 2011. They announced the event horizon in 2019. The DARPA piece came in in the P3 program. And then I want you to read the title of the paper. And I told you we would come back to it. Remember I told you we have that 2002 patent that was going to come back to haunt us? Well, here it is, coming back to haunt us. The 2002 patent came back to haunt us during the gain-of-function moratorium because in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in February of 2016, the following article was published. SARS-like WIV1-COV poised for human emergence. Now you should be asking, hey Dave, what's WIV1? Well, that is Wuhan Institute of Virology COVID Virus 1. And if you read the fine print of the article, you find out 
that when they said it was poised for human emergence, they didn't just say it was ready to be released. They actually went into detail about the best way to release it. In 2016. And at the bottom of that article, conveniently out of sight because most people don't bother reading all the way down through the article. At the bottom of the article, you find that the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill impaneled not one, but two institutional review board reviews of this study. The first one to review the ethics of the study, and the second one to review the ethics of violating the law on the gain-of-function moratorium. UNC Chapel Hill was so concerned with breaking the law that they impaneled an ethics review board to examine the merits of breaking the law. That, by the way, is not a normal scientific process. You do not usually have an ethics board going, well, should we do this? And eh, it's probably a bad idea. And then somebody goes, it's illegal. And then somebody goes, pause. Okay, this thing that's illegal, should we do the illegal thing? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Okay, the guys over here said it was ethical to do the illegal thing to kill people. That happened and is published in this 2016 article. The crime, conspiring to commit acts of terror, restraint of trade, deceptive medical practices, price fixing, fraudulent conveyance, these are the crimes that the World Health Organization not only allowed to happen but promoted these crimes and gave political cover for those crimes and fraudulent conveyance and contracting, coercion and murder, the casualties, consent, and human lives. Because now, we actually now see the data. And the top line in that graph is the vaccinated, according to the British data. And what you see is now all-cause mortality in the ages of 18 to 55 is now 40% higher in the people that were injected with a biological weapon. That number is not going down. That number is going up in every jurisdiction. And here's the saddest part about it. That number will continue to go up. If they have their 2011 objective, that number will go up to 2 billion people. We... Huh? Oh, yeah, but it's, they don't have to do anything new. What's already been released in the spike protein, what has already been released because of the pseudouridine in the shot, has actually unleashed what they're now calling turbo cancers. This was known in 2018. Pseudouridine is known to be a suppressor of all cancer-controlling agents in the body. It directly impacts TNF directly impacts interleukins, and it directly promotes oncogenic activity, which means that the people who are injected already have the switch turned on. And this is not going to be largely myocarditis. There will be a lot of heart disease, but the biggest killer is going to be cancer. And there's no question about it. We already see that happening. Which, which kind of cancers, uh, apart from lungs? Well, no, it's actually mostly, here's the weird thing. It's not just lungs. What we're seeing is a lot of people who have um, breast cancers that were in some form of remission, maybe a small BRCA-related tumor that then has this gene turned back on 
and accelerate. So you're seeing a lot of people go from remission to stage four. Not, not kind of a gradual thing. It, it goes, I'm in remission, I'm in stage four. You're seeing an increase in prostate cancers, and most importantly, prostate cancer surgeries. There are those who understand that in population control, there's a lot of ways to control a population, but one of the best ways to control a population is make sex difficult, if not impossible. Don't think for a minute transgender accidentally showed up at the same time as COVID. Right? It didn't. This is all part of a plan. There's no question that prostate cancer and more importantly, prostatectomies are part of the plan because it turns out that it becomes very difficult to procreate if you don't have the ability to have intercourse. That's actually a kind of a rate limiting step in, in intercourse. It's not surprising that we see an increase in ovarian and uterine cancers. It's not surprising that we're seeing an increase in pancreatic cancers and rapidly acting pancreatic cancers. It's not at all surprising that what we are now seeing an enormous amount of lymphoma cases where you go from barely diagnosed to dead in the space of less than two and a half months. And most importantly, the biggest one right now is melanomas. Those are going the fastest to death, right? These tumors are actually rapidly acting tumors. And that's the ones we know in largely adult populations. What we do not yet know, but I think is going to be a bigger shock to most people, is the children born of the injected. We have no idea, none. We have no idea what is going to be the prognosis of all of the idiopathic diseases that are going to be coming because we didn't ever even bother to look. No, no question. Yeah. So this is a question of why would they, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the broader sense, why would the they participate? Well, there's, there's a bunch of places. We, we talked about Australia. Okay, we talked about um, all kinds of places. Austria, which was the first one to pass the law requiring that we actually go into a mandatory vaccine regime. These, these programs actually are showing you that the illusion that we had of the nation state was gone a long time ago. I gave a lecture in 2011 where I said the illusion of Westphalia was over. <laughs> the delusion of Westphalia. Now, what is the delusion of Westphalia? For those of you not familiar with the historical reference, Westphalia was the agreements we made largely in Europe, to start drawing lines on a map. Prior to that, we actually just said, who's the lord of wherever you live? You're the lord of wherever you live, then you're subject to. And in the Westphalia treaties, what we started doing was going, yeah, there's the line, oh, there's the line, oh, there's the line. And we started drawing lines on maps, and then we put convenient flags up, and we said, woohoo, now we have a flag, now we have a line, we now have countries. Well, here's what happened. In 1944, we killed Westphalia. 1944. And some of you should be sitting there going, but 1944, that was during the Second World War. And I'm saying, yes, 1944, during the Second World War, we killed Westphalia. And we did it in a very cunning way. What we did was we sent a lot of people over to a place called Bretton Woods in the United States. And in Bretton Woods in the United States in the summer of 1944, a group of people who were never elected, never appointed, Never did anything. In fact, a group of people not larger than the group of people here tonight. And this is the encouraging thing. I told you I'd end with a hopeful thing, because I'm not a minister sending you to hell. It's a hopeful thing. 
1944, a group no larger than this group right here tonight actually said, if the Allies win the war. Because it wasn't clear we were going to, by the way. It wasn't certain that we were going to. But the statement was, if we win the war, and if we come out as basically a cooperating League of Nations, the term that was used in the early and mid-40s, which ultimately became the United Nations, but then League of Nations, if we emerge as the League of Nations, what we will do is we will agree to establish multilateral agencies who will take over finance, health, trade. Well, let me pause for a minute. Finance, health, and trade. What other functions does a government do? No, I'm asking a real serious question. I would go as far as to say that in our collective lifetimes, none of us have lived in a sovereign state. None of us. And the evidence for it is GATT, which became the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, which became the World Bank and the IFC, and what ultimately became this nonsensical thing that you have in this particular part of the world, which is this nonsense of monetary unions that are all linked to what? US the U.S. dollar. We stopped having countries in 1944. And I love how nostalgic people go, but I still feel German. I still feel Swiss. Give me a friggin' break. <laughs> I don't care what you feel. This is not a feeling exercise. This is our first opportunity to realize, are you ready for this? That we are a collective people without elected representation. Now, we could look at this and we could say, I wanted to have a patriarchal figure that lorded over me. I wanted to be subservient to whoever had a badge on their arm. I wanted to pay taxes to these nice people who helped me. <laughs> we could do that. Or we could sit here in Basel on September the 12th, 2023, and we could say, hold on a minute. You mean a group this size got together in 1944 in the uber-rich Bretton Woods Resort for the summer aristocracy in the United States, got together and just said, we're going to go ahead and take over the world. And they did. Here's the thing that blows my mind. And this is the end of this part of the conversation. I'm amazed at how little courage we have anymore. I don't know when we decided that they are powerful. When did we decide that? The answer is we didn't. Through a series of acquiescent steps, we just let the they's of the world come in and say, we'd like to take your money. Okay, how much? <laughs> oh, we'd like to tell you what health is. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, we'd like to genetically modify your food so that your GI system is actually suffering from a pathogen that the Japanese know, knew would create biome gut disorders in 1904 called Bacillus thuringiensis, which is the BT that we use to genetically modify every food stuff that we produce in mass production. And we're more than happy to say, yes, line me up for my high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> People, if we read Japanese, we would realize that in 1904, the Bacillus thuringiensis toxin was known to be a gut health disruptor, published as such in Japanese medical literature. And you know why you don't know that? Because it's in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> We let the world have Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. We let the world have gut disorders. We let children have food allergies. We, and thank you for pointing that out. We, we let all of these things happen, and we did it because we couldn't read a Japanese paper from 1904 that actually said that that's exactly what was going to happen when all the biotech companies in the United States and Europe decided to collude to toxify our food with Bacillus thuringiensis because we could sell more glyphosate. If you do one thing tonight, do me the favor of stopping the illusion that you're Swiss or you're German or you're American or you're whatever you think you are. Start by examining what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? What is the organic beauty of the human life? What is the capacity to assemble this being so that it can inhabit a world in which it has the ability and the faculties to perceive and sense and experience this amazing, beautiful world that we live in? What does it mean to be human, to be able to share information from experiences in lifetime? What does it mean to actually exchange ideas across cultures, have open conversations so that knowledge can flourish? And the Greek ideal of gnosis can return, where we don't know based on what we were told, but we know based on our lived experience. What would it be like if instead of value exchange denominated by central banks where we do debt-denominated currencies, what if we actually rewarded people for the value of their contribution? What if the ideal was not to pay as much as possible on the Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich, but pay for the value of the experience that somebody actually created for you, which you enriched your life with and through. What if that was our monetary system? Where we rewarded value, not price. What would it be like if our technology that we deployed across every experience was about diminishing the barriers to human connection rather than increasing our isolation through immersive and augmented and virtual reality? What if we had the capacity of realizing that the analog conditions of face-to-face -face contact, the communion of sitting down in fellowship and sharing a meal or sharing a drink or having a conversation or putting our arms around somebody and hugging somebody who actually just needs to experience the human touch, what if that were our definition of human? And what if ultimately we realized that at the gateway to the temple of Apollo, the inscription said, know thyself. So that when you entered into the holiest of the temples, you recognized that your job wasn't to convince somebody of your rightness or your merit, 
but to do the inner work, the inner examination that says, am I worthy to enter into the divinity of human interaction? What if that was our world? You know what we wouldn't have? The World Health Organization. <laughs> you know what we wouldn't have? Yeah. We wouldn't have federal states. <clears throat> you know what we wouldn't have? We wouldn't have fractional reserve banks that prop up illusionary interests so that we can save for a life not worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, the real purpose of my presentation and the real purpose of my life is singular. I've been told I should fear for my life because I speak out against the forces of evil. Guess what? They can't take what I cannot give them. This is not my life. This is a life. Not mine. You can't take it. Right now it's contained in this 56-year-old, sometimes slightly ailing frame. But it's a powerful frame, and it travels all over the world and does crazy things all over the world. And on the day I am no longer useful in this form, I will transform. That'll happen. God help the bad guys when I can move without being seen. <laughs> Think about it. Why, why are we so worried? Why are we giving them the agency of fear? As long as I'm useful in this form, I will be in this form. And the minute I'm no longer useful in this form, I will transform. And I hope each one of you understands exactly the same thing. Make sure that you are worthy of transformation. Thank you very much. And now you know a story that no one in the media would be willing to share with you. There is no governmental agency that will invite David Martin to debate his findings. There will be no Rachel Maddow or Howard Stern or Jimmy Kimball inviting him on to share this. In fact, it is information that would be lethal to the false arguments they have given. Now you can say, but these people in the media and celebrities... They were innocent in the sense that they believed the message they were told, and I would not doubt that. I do not accuse any of the people who have given us misinformation in the media as being aware of the truth and simply lying. I believe that most of them were carrying forward what they were told was the truth, but they did not use their resources, which are substantial. The money they earn, the access they have to interviewing people, so now it is on them to come forward and acknowledge that there's another story to tell, the truth that COVID was manufactured with the intent to be used as a biological weapon. And who used it initially and how it was used is still to be determined. But gain-of-function research is, by every measure, biological weaponization. We know that there are players around the world, whether it's Russia, the United States, Iran, uh, North Korea, China, Israel. There are countries that have the capacity and knowledge 
to weaponize bacteria and viruses. They have done it. But we had a treaty, and the treaty that all these people were signatories to except North Korea said we're not going to create offensive biological weapons. And we lied, and everyone continued doing exactly that. So now the question is this. Now you know a perspective. You can believe it or not. That will be your choice. But if you believe that everyone in the government who was aware of this committed a crime against humanity, where in the United States one million Americans died. Why? Because it was not as lethal as they said. It would not have impacted children and young people and babies. It should never have been given to pregnant women. And in fact, it didn't even hold the efficacy with the safety we were told. And now we're knowing that the most vulnerable people to die, be hospitalized, are the people who are vaccinated. And the more vaccines they got, the more vulnerable they are. And yet they're still promoting this vaccine, or it's for the, for the various uh, types of viruses, as if a pregnant woman should take it. And yet look at the science showing that they shouldn't. So they continue the game. Why do they do this, and how do they feel that they can continue it without being challenged? Because they control the narrative. They control the scientific community. They control the medical community. They control the bureaucracies. They control the media. How do they do this? How do they lie to us so often on so many different topics and people continue to say, okay, you've lied a thousand times, but we're going to trust you now. And that's what we played earlier in the week with uh, the professor from Belgium on mass psychoses. Doctors, scientists, highly educated people are not just vulnerable to being propagandized, but they're actually more vulnerable. And once they believe in something, even something is wrong, they defend it with an enormous passion, much like a member of a cult. So the lies will continue. It is for you not to accept them. Whatever you choose to do with this day, think well on these issues, because this is what we're starting the new year with. More lies, more cover-up, more false information, more disinformation. It's time for you to say, I'm walking away from all of this and going towards those places, those platforms, those individuals who I know have more integrity and will tell the truth. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day. Mm-hmm.